a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus this morning. The book of Titus. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can borrow one of ours, which you will find under one of the chairs in front of you. Titus chapter 1. Without any political acts to grind, I am a self-professed independent, so it is not meant to be a slam on any particular party. Nevertheless, it was fascinating this last few days to watch the debate and the discussion about the debate of having the mention of God in the official Democratic National Convention platform. Uh, When some complained, it was put to a vote. And after voting three times, there was still not a sufficient number of eyes to put it back in. And nevertheless, the chairperson put it in anyway. And there was much discussion about that. And ultimately, the the pundits and the commentators say that it was important to put it back in, not because uh, that's really necessarily what the Democrats wanted, but they were afraid of political blowback from the rest of the country for not mentioning God. The point here, again, is not to be political, but simply to make this observation. We live very clearly in an age and a culture that is becoming increasingly less interested and less tolerant of God, particularly the Christian God. For God's people, that means there should be an increasingly obvious difference between our lives and the lives of those in the culture around us. At least that's that's what it should mean for us. The sad truth is, as I look out across the landscape, I'm concerned that in some parts of the church there there appears to be an actually less clear distinction between God's people and the anti-God culture in which we live. Just this week, for example, I came across a website of a graphic artist who claimed to be a Christian, and he had a project where uh, he would take some some key verse out of a book and design a poster uh, to uh, to highlight the individual books of the Old and New Testament. And I was pretty surprised when in his poster for First Timothy he ha- he used the three letter acronym WTF to describe a verse that he found unthinkable in one of Paul's letters. Now, if you don't know what that is, just know that it's pretty crass and crude and not something I would expect any Christian to use. Nevertheless, when Christians challenged him in the comment section on this blog post, despite verses like Ephesians 5.4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, he defended himself, saying that it was okay sometimes to speak like the pagans around us in order to get our point across. Perhaps what was most disheartening was the fact that this man attended a fairly popular church with a popular pastor in some circles, and in fact that pastor had endorsed and encouraged him that it was okay to use that kind of language in his artwork. We live in a culture that has lost interest in God, and I wonder if perhaps the church is doing the same. And here's where Paul's letter to Titus can help us. In this letter, Paul is writing to this young pastor in Crete, which was a region known for all manner of sin and corruption. And here Paul tells Titus exactly how the church is meant to live in such a place. Specifically, he makes clear that despite what some may say today, it actually matters what Christians believe and how they live. In fact, he goes to great pains to show in this book alone that there is an inseparable link between belief and and behavior, between doctrine and duty, between faith and life for God's people. 
Thus, what Paul addresses in this letters is what some modern writers have called the gospel gap. That is, the, the chasm between what we say we believe and how we actually live in light of that belief. And this morning, as we begin a new series through Paul's letter to Titus, over the next seven weeks, we will see both why and how God's people are meant to close that gospel gap. That is to say, why and how we are to manifest the grace of God in our lives. So we want to begin the series at the beginning. We want to see Paul's greeting to his dear friend Titus and in the process see what is really the major themes of the letter to which we will look over the next couple months. Follow along as I read beginning at verse 1 of Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In these short verses, we see the groundwork for the rest of the letter, the seedbed for all the major themes and applications that Paul will give to Titus and so also to us today. And what we want to see is this. Bridging that gospel gap between belief and life doesn't come by seeking out new ideas or new methods, but rather by remembering, reclaiming, and refocusing ourselves around the grace of God in the gospel of Christ. It is not to look for some new innovation. It is to go back to the very foundation of our lives as God's people. Thus, what we will see this morning is that all of what we are to believe and to do as Christians is rooted in the very things that Paul himself believed and did as an apostle of Christ's church. So this is what we want to see this morning. And we begin by noting this first thing, and that is this, the goal of apostolic ministry. The goal of apostolic ministry. Paul begins with a statement about, uh, the, the letter begins with a statement about the author. Paul begins by telling us something about himself. He says that this is coming from Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know previously he was a Pharisee and he was a good one at that. Elsewhere, Paul says in his former life in Judaism, he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. In fact, in Acts chapter 22, he says he was so extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers and he was that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age among his people. Yet Paul also says in 1 Timothy 1 that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, Paul puts himself in the same position as much of his brethren of the day, the Jewish people, that they had a zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge. Therefore, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, he sought to establish a righteousness of his own. This is what Paul says about himself and his people in Romans chapter 10. In some ways then what Paul, uh, Paul's situation before he came to Christ reminds me of the uh, Kent State player football, uh, football player who we re hopefully, not hopefully, but probably saw about a few weeks ago. Uh, he uh, got this loose ball and uh, you didn't see it, you were out of the country. <laughs> uh, he picked up this loose ball and began ran running hoping to score or get whatever it was, but he was running the wrong direction. And uh, you can imagine he had good intentions. He wanted an opportunity to score for his team, at least to make some yards, perhaps even attain glory for himself. 
But though well-intentioned, nothing the player wanted to accomplish was going to happen. First of all, because it was, uh, it was a, uh, a muffed punt. And therefore, it's against the rules either to, uh, uh, either to uh, return or retreat the ball. More than that, he's going the wrong way. So though he's well-intentioned, nothing good is going to come from what he's trying to do. Likewise, Paul, even passionately well-intentioned, was not going to accomplish what he wanted. Namely, earning, securing, by God's grace, a righteousness of his own that he might stand guiltless before God. And the reality is, all of us have that basic desire. All of us fall into the same trap that Paul did, and that is thinking we can live a good life, a good enough life, to make ourselves right with God. And Paul says it is an impossible task. In fact, Paul says that we cannot establish our own righteousness before God, but rather we must embrace the righteousness of God himself that he has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We must feel the weight of our sin against the holiness of God and come to realize there is a spiritual debt towards God that we can never repay. We can never live so righteously as to make up for the offense of our rebellion against him. But God is a gracious God and he has provided what we need, a righteousness through his son that we might be forgiven and made right with him. In fact, Paul says this is exactly what happened to him. In his words, in Galatians 1, God called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul was shown that the the way to be made right with God isn't by working hard but by receiving. It's not by earning righteousness, but by receiving righteousness. And now as Paul is writing this letter to Titus, he is no longer this zealous but misguided Pharisee. Instead, he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And both of those titles tell us something essential about Paul and his ministry. Throughout the Bible, many people have been called the servant of God. We see it in uh, Moses and in Joshua and in the prophets. Even Jesus himself was called the suffering servant of God. Sadly, our nation's history has caused Bible translators to steer away from a better rendering of this world. Properly speaking, Paul refers to himself as a slave of God in this verse, meaning he is one who is bought, owned, and directed by God in all that he does. It is through the precious blood of Christ that Paul has been purchased for God. And while that first title speaks to a position of great humility, the second one speaks to his great authority. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he had been commissioned by the risen Christ himself with a unique call to represent Christ before humanity. Through his preaching and leadership, Paul had a unique authority entrusted to him by Christ himself. He spoke for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he did in his preaching and ministry. Now, what was the goal of that ministry? Being a servant of God, one who was formerly a zealous Pharisee, even persecuting the church, having received God's grace, and now a servant of God with an accurate knowledge of who God is, and now even an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is his goal? What is his aim? What is he trying to accomplish through his apostolic ministry? Paul says in verse 1 that he is a slave and an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. God's elect are his people, chosen by God to salvation, not because of what they have done or because of anything good in them, but because of his sovereign grace and loving mercy. Paul says that he serves for the sake of their faith and their knowledge of the truth. 
In other words, Paul's ministry is the means of bringing God's elect people into his church through Christ. His goal in ministry is to preach the gospel so as to lead people to put their faith in Christ and find salvation, but also to increase in their knowledge of God through the word. These two things, faith and knowledge, are, are organically connected. Paul will say in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Therefore, it is the proclamation and explanation of the truth of God's word that brings faith to his people. Not just for salvation, but ongoing faith. So, so when whoever is preaching stands up and proclaims God's word, God's word to you, God is seeking to continue to deepen and encourage your faith in him through that preached word. This is why I would just say as a side note, don't just listen closely to the preached word. Take up the word and preach to yourself. Open, open the book and read. And ask God to build faith into your heart. There is no gap between faith and knowledge. Faith is never blind. It's never a leap in the dark. It is always based on the reality of divine truth. It's an important point. For Psalm 90 says, those who know your name... Put their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, listen to your people. Without knowing God, faith will never come. Without knowing God, faith will never come. Without knowing Him deeply, deep faith will never come. Without teaching, there will never be living. And therefore, Paul's great aim in ministry is not only to serve for the faith of God's people, but also to increase their knowledge of the truth. And what happens through that kind of ministry? Well, this is the second thing that we see. We see the fruit of apostolic faith. The fruit of apostolic faith. Now, in the previous point, I think it's easy enough to understand what I mean when I use the word apostle, but here it may not be so clear. By apostolic faith, I do not mean the personal faith of the apostles, as important as that was, but rather the faith generated by the apostolic message they proclaimed. In that sense, all true Christians hear the same message from the same word with the same promises about the same Savior as the apostles themselves. From day one to day whatever we're at now, uh, nothing has changed in terms of the Christian message. Or at least we can say if that's true and nothing has changed, then we can say that the church today is an apostolic church. Not that it's run by living apostles, but that it is seeking to hold the same truths, continue in the same ministry, preach the same gospel, and worship the same Lord as those earliest Christians who were taught by the apostles themselves, who were taught by Christ. So if we have a genuine faith, an apostolic faith, then certain fruit is going to be evident in our lives. This is what Paul says in verses 1 through 2. He says, I am serving... For the, sake, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. This is a faith and knowledge which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. It's important to know that the Christian faith is about more than information. It's not just teaching. It, it is that, but, but it's not less than that, I mean, but it's more than that. It certainly begins with information. It begins with news, doesn't it? Good news of God's Son who set aside the glories of heaven, who took on the flesh of humanity to stand in the gap between a holy people and sinful humanity, living and dying and living again as the perfect mediator, the only mediator that could bring sinful people into right relationship with a holy God. 
through the personal work of Christ, sinful people who deserve eternal hell can be forgiven and experience eternal life. This is, this, is how, this is how the Christian life, the Christian faith begins, with this news being proclaimed to us and us putting our faith there. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't, it doesn't stop with us just believing the message of the gospel. We're told the first fruit of an apostolic faith is an evident godliness. An evident godliness. Paul says the faith and knowledge of the elect accords with godliness. That is, it produces or leads to godliness. John Stott, great preacher and commentator who died uh, not long ago, makes the comment that this should not be surprising to us, that truth that comes from God should invariably lead us back to God. Therefore, he says, quote, any doctrine which does not promote godliness is manifestly bogus. That's a great theological word, bogus. Christian truth, even the gospel itself, is not simply about knowing people. Or, or I mean, rather, it's not about knowing information. It's not about knowing more than other people. It's not about being smarter than other them or having bragging rights. Despite all of Paul's language of learning and knowing and studying, the Christian faith is not merely an academic exercise. Paul says the truth that we know is truth about a person, namely God himself. And to know him is to be changed by him. It's to have our lives transformed. And that's the effect that that truth should have. What were you like before the gospel came to your life? Were you angry or a brawler? Were you proud or vain? Did you use crude language? Were you blasphemous? Were you lazy or a thief? Paul will say, if that is what you once were when the gospel comes into your life, that is not what you should continue to be. And therefore, with simple words... And you have a very profound statement. When I was in high school and college, I used to see t-shirts all the time that said, No Christ, no change. N-O. No Christ meant no change. But if you know Christ, K-N-O-W, then you would know change. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. When your life is encountered by the living God through his Son, a change should take place. And if that change has not taken place, then frankly the encounter is in question. It doesn't mean that you profess faith in Christ and the next day you're a totally different person. In one sense, before God, you are a totally different person. But most of our sin springs from habitual actions and behavior. And those things take time to root out and to change. Nevertheless, there should be an evident godliness to our lives. And I fear sometimes we undercut that reality because we emphasize too much the ongoing struggle with sin to the point that we can just become kind of lazy or apathetic to fight against that sin and just say, well, I'm a sinner anyway, I'm saved by grace. What does it matter if we live a godly life? We may not actually say that, but that's kind of how we live. Oh, well. And the reality is, Paul says, yes, there is a fight, but the, the power of sin... Its its function in your life has been finally and dramatically cut by the salvation you have in Christ. Sin is no longer your king. Just as Christ, as it were, stamped out and destroyed the head of the serpent at the cross, so also now every day we can stamp out the head of sin in our lives because of the grace we have received. We can grow in godliness. We can live in a way that pleases God. In fact, that's the expectation 
that God has for his people who are being renewed day by day through a knowledge of his truth. That theme is important, and Paul will return to it several times throughout the letter. True Christian faith leads to evident godliness. But secondly, it produces a certain hope. It produces a certain hope. Paul says that the faith and knowledge of God's elect accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. When the gospel is preached and people come to believe, it produces a certain hope within us. Not certain as in specific, a certain kind of hope, but rather guaranteed. A a certain, it is going to happen, a certain hope of eternal life. And notice why that hope is so certain, why we can can know that it's going to happen. Paul gives three reasons. First of all, we can know that eternal life is part of God's eternal purpose for his people because he promised it before the ages began. Before anything was ever created, before you were born or sinful, God had ordained that his people, that he would redeem from sin, would have eternal life. Second, as the one who made the promise, we know God never lies. If you know rock-solid truth that that this individual never lies, you can have great confidence in what they say. If they make the promise, like God did, you will have eternal life, then it's a certain and sure hope that you have. Finally, it was this truthful God who not only promised eternal life, but made it manifest at the proper time to the preaching of Paul by the command of God our Savior. Thus Paul explains that the promise of God is based on the character of God and made known to us by the Word of God. And I would even argue these two things are related. The the production of godliness and the sure hope we have of eternal life with God are related in this sense. The more we are assured of the hope of eternal life that we have, the easier it will be for us to live godly lives. Think about it like this. Think about, we, we just had the Summer Olympics. And I love the Summer Olympics. I love the Winter Olympics. I love the Olympics. Uh, you, in theory, get to see the best of the best. You hear all these stories of uh, people that you just thought had no chance of accomplishing anything in their life. And through God's providence, mercy was found in them. And suddenly here they are at the, at the Olympics. And they're just amazing comeback stories sometimes. But it's interesting in the interviews, you, you almost never hear someone say, well, I just hope to get on the platform. I mean, every once in a while, you have somebody from some country that has no program, and they'll just say, man, I am here, and I just want to meddle. I just want to be on that platform. But almost always you hear somebody say, I am going for the gold. I want the gold. I think they love the sport they're in, but I think they want what comes at the finish line when you finish first. That is what is driving them. That is what is motivating them every single day, week after week, month after month, year after year, as they train hard, as they deprive themselves of all of the comforts that we love, like snack food and extra those seconds at the dinner table and whatever it is. They give up a social life and extra time with friends and family. They put all of those things aside so, because they know what is going to come at the finish line. And they are striving for it. Likewise, for us as Christians, we know what is coming at the finish line. We know what is waiting for us on the final day. And the more we are convinced of that reality, the more it seeps into our thinking. It is a surety in our minds, this hope of eternal life. We will find it easier to press on in godliness. Like Moses, as Hebrews tells us, who chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, considering the the reproach of Christ, greater wealth and the treasures of Egypt, all because he was looking to the reward of God, how much more should we look past the empty, fleeting, soul-killing temptations of this world 
to the endless life of glorious fellowship with the living God. If we stand back and think, this is what awaits me on the final day. As we heard from that passage in Revelation 4 or 5, this all, I mean, what can you describe him as? But the Almighty, the one who is all glorious with these thousands of angels encircling the throne, some just day and night because he is worthy of it, praising him, bowing down and worshiping him, peals of lightning and thunder, booming around, showing his power and authority. And that God says, I will adopt you as my child not because you've deserved it. In fact, despite of your sin, I will forgive you. And I will do it at the price of the life of my own son. And I will invite you to not just stand afar away like these angels, but to come near, to draw close to me and behold my glory face to face. When that sinks in, when that reality of the finish line is laid before us and we behold it clearly, suddenly the bits and bobbles of this world that so many people strive for look like cheap junk to us. We say, no thanks. No thanks. I am pressing on for something far, far greater. This is what the gospel should produce in our life, an evident godliness that springs from a certain hope. Third, we see from this passage, the partnership of apostolic leadership. The partnership of apostolic leadership. As is typical in his letters, Paul not only says, hey, it's me writing, but he identifies who he is writing to. And in this case, it is to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Who is Titus? Well, it's interesting we have not a lot of information about Titus, but what we do have causes us to actually know quite a bit about him. And uh, understand, you know, you don't, you don't need to, to read fancy books and commentaries. Just do a search for the word Titus in the New Testament, and you will come up with all the references to him. And uh, there's just about 10 or 12 verses, and you'll be able to read all there is to know about Titus and the kind of man that he was. Um, I encourage you to do that, but let me do that for you now as well, all right? Titus first pops up in one of Paul's earliest letters, the letter to the Galatians. There we see Paul explaining his reception of the gospel directly from the risen Christ and his work among the Gentiles in the area where he grew up, Syria and uh, Cilicia. Then he says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So at this point, Titus has been converted, most likely under Paul's ministry, and now he has come on as a ministry partner with Paul. Paul calls him his true child in the common faith. Spiritually speaking, I think that we are to understand that to mean Paul is his spiritual father. That is to say, he is the one that, that caused, he was the human means by which the new birth took place in Titus. And he was birthed as this son in Christ. Paul was his mentor. He was his teacher. He corrected him. He encouraged him, just as a father does his son, not just in learning to be a man, but for Paul and Titus, learning how to live the Christian life. We learn from Galatians that Titus himself was a Gentile. He was part of the first fruits of the gospel going to the nations that would mark Paul's apostolic ministry. And again, we see that he is now part of Paul's ministry team traveling with him. Years later, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he will talk about Titus being his partner and fellow worker. Titus was one of the men that Paul entrusted with the collection of the special offering for the Jerusalem church suffering under a famine. More importantly, Titus was the man that Paul sent to Corinth, uh, the city of Corinth, and the church there on behalf of himself to encourage them and to set right the strained relationship that Paul had developed with Corinth, this church that he planted, 
and this people that he loved. And between two visits, Titus did exactly what Paul had wanted to see happen. He led the Corinthians to repent of their sin and to embrace Paul again as an apostle, as a leader, as a spiritual father. And Paul says, this not only brought the Corinthians comfort and joy, it brought me comfort and joy. So we see for over 20 years, Titus faithfully serving alongside the apostle Paul. Now he's continuing to serve in partnership with him, having this, being this apostolic delegate, as it were, in Crete. Paul had previously been there, planted a church, and now he has come back through, and he leaves Titus there, as we will see next week, to set things right and to appoint godly leadership. Titus is shown to be in every way an example of a godly Christian, of a servant who lives for the glory of God and the good of his people. He is the kind of man that we want to name our sons after. But he's also the kind of man who serves as an example to all of us on how we should live, not just in our character, but also in our ministry. It's clear from Paul's letters that he knew, Paul knew, he can't do this ministry alone. He has the unique responsibility, has the unique calling, but he gathers around himself ministry partners. He gathers around himself a group of disciple makers that he takes with him to start and to encourage uh, churches. These gospel workers, he draws alongside them. He teaches not only what the gospel is, but how to do ministry. Some stay with Paul. Some, like Titus and Timothy, are dropped off for their own ministry. All had different gifts. All come from different backgrounds. But all of them had the same common apostolic faith and were working towards advancing the kingdom of God. And when we see this reality, this paradigm of Paul's relationship to Titus, the question we have to ask ourselves is simply this. How are we involved in gospel ministry? Are we involved in making disciples? Are we involved in sharing Christ for evangelizing the lost and for in the encouragement of the church? The, the reality is God doesn't want a team where most of the people never get off the bench and don't get into the game. That's not what God is about. In part for practical reasons. When, when I played football in junior high, I went to a Christian school and it was small. But we didn't play other public schools our side, we, size. We just played other Christian schools. That meant other schools that were three, four, five, six times our size, and their football teams reflected that. And almost every game I played, almost every play, offense and defense. And when I was done, at the, at, you know, at the end of those games, I was done. I mean, I just like went home, brushed my teeth, went to the bathroom, and I went to bed. And, and, and that was it. It was hard work, especially when you're getting mowed over by guys that are twice your size. I cannot help but believe, because I've seen it time and time again, that even when it comes to church ministry, it is the same people playing the same plays, offense and defense in every game that comes up. And I think by the example of Paul himself, an apostle, who, who we would think, well, he can do it all, he's an apostle. He says, I can't do it all. I shouldn't do it all. Because God's people have been equipped to go and to minister and to serve question is not what are you doing generically it's not even what are you doing to get the pastor off your back from asking you to do stuff all the time no the question is this how are you serving god how are you showing love for your savior by seeking to spread the fame of his name by making disciples either encouraging other disciples who are flagging to come on get up let's continue to run this race jesus is worth it or by going to people in Niger or in downtown Bay City or Midland or wherever and saying, hey, you know that sin that you love so much? 
give it up because Jesus is worth it. What kind of partnership have you engaged in with God's church for the advancement of his kingdom? The last thing that we see is this, the blessing of apostolic care. The blessing of apostolic care. Paul ends his greeting with these words of blessing for Titus. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now if you've been a Christian for a while, we're used to church talk and it's very easy to, to take words like this for granted, grace and peace. In fact, most commentaries barely take a paragraph and they're on to verse 5. But don't rest so lightly on these words. These things are foundational blessings as God's people that give us confidence of God's love despite our sin and encouragement to press on towards godliness and service to our Savior. Grace and peace are blessings that come to us right at the beginning of our walk with Him and remain with us until the very end. Grace is, of course, God's unmerited favor. It is His blessing given to us, not as a wage that we've earned, but as a gift we don't deserve. And all of salvation is wrapped up in this idea of grace. In fact, it's from God's gracious act of salvation that we receive peace. This is more than the kind of peace we strive for with neighbors or nations. It's not less than that, but far more. This is peace with God. It is rest for our weary souls. The battle and the struggle with Him is over. He has won. The King is victorious. But rather than wipe us out, He has brought us into His kingdom. He has made us His friends. He has adopted us into His family. He's done all that through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's not until, frankly, we come to grips with that profound grace and peace that God has given to us that we will ever freely give ourselves back to Him. Charles Spurgeon gets this well when he writes a story of a king, a farmer, and a nobleman. He says, Once upon a time there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener who grew this enormous carrot. He took it to the king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerning the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But then there was a nobleman at the king's court and he had overheard all that he said and said, My, if that's what you get for a carrot... What would you gave the king? What would you get from the king if you gave something better? The next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and simply took the horse and dismissed him. The nobleman was starting to walk away perplexed. So the king said, Let, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. See, the king owned already everything in the land. It was already his. And out of gratefulness for having the small thing that he had, the farmer gave to the king while the nobleman tried to barter with him. The, the nobleman tried to negotiate and see what could he get back for what he was giving. The truth is that God has already given us that which is most precious to him, namely himself. God is the most precious being in the universe. And Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him graciously all things? You cannot barter with grace. Grace says you don't deserve anything, yet I am going to give you 
everything. That's what God says for his people. You don't deserve anything, but I'm going to give you everything that I have, even my own son. And when we understand that that is the basis of our relationship with God, grace and not merit, then we will be like that farmer who generously gave the king everything. We will give him our time. We will give him our money, our reputation, our talents, our family. We will trust him with all that we have following Christ wherever he leads us to go. If we're going to bridge the gap between theology and life, actually living as God's people in a sinful world, faithfully serving our God and Savior, it will begin not by looking for new insights, but by returning to the apostles' message of the cross of Christ, a message of God's grace for sinners. Father, we are so thankful for that message of grace. We are thankful that our relationship with you is not finally based on what we do or who we are, but all that you are and what you have done for us. God, help us to understand and soak in your grace that we might manifest it before one another in a watching world, that you yourself might receive glory and honor and praise that is due your name. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and lives again as Lord of all things. Amen.